0: So, if you want to tear it, we're going to cover a lot of, of text today, and, and uh, Lord willing, it'll work on the screen, and so uh, you're, you won't get paper cuts in your fingers. Um, but that's where we're going to start. Um, so, a few caveats before we dive into this. This is an important topic, and it's an important topic for us for a lot of reasons. Important enough that I don't preach topically very often. Um, most of the time, through most of my tenure, it has been book by book verse by verse and we just kind of trudge that way um, but this was one I wanted to stop I wanted to focus on and just do a holistic this is what spiritual gifts are this is what they aren't and in particular I wanted to focus and talk about the miraculous gifts because there is a huge misunderstanding on on on, on those gifts so we're talking prophecy we're talking tongues we're talking miracles uh, and, and, and healings wrapped in all of those things um, and the reason why this is important for us is because in scurry county and in snyder churches stand in various places on these this issue and so what, what i'm going to do is lay out what, what i believe and, and what the scriptures teach What i think pretty clearly but we do have to come to this humbly and say good devout christians have landed in different spots on this throughout the years um, and so this is not a, a primary issue just because you disagree with with us on this issue doesn't mean you're not a believer in jesus but it is a secondary issue, and it is a very important secondary issue. And secondary issues are, are hard because how we come to secondary issues could be a primary issue. Right? And so if if you say something like, I believe in the gift of tongues because I can do it, that's undermining the, the scripture, right? You, you believe in the gift of tongues. You need to come from the Bible and prove why you do and why you don't, right? The Bible is a first-tier issue. Well, this might not be. So... Um, I've studied this a bunch Trying to come to understand it There's a bunch of arguments I'm not going to walk you through Every single one of them I'm, w- I'm going to go through What I think is the best And the most biblical argument For the you on this um, But I want to give credit Because I'm going to use This book a lot I don't want you to think Like I sat and was able to do this I pastor a church Called Ivor Baptist Church In a small town And I have lots of hats to wear One of which is being The self-proclaimed Substitute teacher of the year And it has to be self-proclaimed Because certain administrators Will not proclaim it <laughs> Yeah yeah, <laughs> nobody in particular, Mr. Jones. <laughs> uh, and so uh, this is a book called Spiritual Gifts, What Are They and Why They Matter by Tom Schreiner. Uh, he's a professor at Southern uh, theologi- Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, a very helpful book, a very biblical book. Uh, he calls himself a nuanced cessationist, and I'll get into all of that with you. Um, but, but I don't want you to think this is just some pie-in-the-sky ivory tower issue for Christians. It's not. This is something that is is practical for us. This is something that plays out in, in how we do church, how we understand the inerrancy, the infallibility, the inspiration of Scripture, the revelation from God. And so today um, we're going to use a lot of different texts, but we're largely just going to talk about prophecy, and I will explain to you why, but that argument flows into the other ones as well. So uh, I want to pray, and then I want to open up the Scriptures, and we will read Ephesians 2.20, which will be our, our central verse as we walk through this. Father, we thank you for today. Uh, God, I thank you that we can come to your word and we can look at things that are argued and things that are debated and things, God, that, that in our fallibility, we often misunderstand. And so I pray, God, that you would give us humility to know, God, that, that we're going to land on the spot on this that other people and other churches may not. But ultimately, God, our goal has to be to glorify you and to be true to your revealed word, to your scriptures. So I pray that you would give us hearts that would do that. That you would help us to understand, God, that to be a spirit-filled Christian doesn't mean that we have to do all of these external, outward things. God, to be a spirit-filled Christian means to be a Christian who is filled with your word. Help us to grow in you. Help us to make much of you. Help us to humbly come to your throne. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, cards on the table. and I teach this in the new member class and we've talked about it quite a bit Um, I consider myself to be a cessationist when it comes to the miraculous gifts which means I believe the miraculous gifts tongues, prophecy, miracles, healings have ceased that those are no longer gifts or those are no longer offices that the Lord does Uh, there's another group called continuationists and they believe those have continued on it's never as simple as just two camps there's all sorts of, of nuance within those things but largely, that's where we lie at. And so what that means as a cessationist is there's things that are caricatures that often get lobbied at us that are that it's not true. Right? We, we hold to the Holy Spirit being God. That is true. We're not saying he doesn't do anything. We're saying he, he acts in a way that God has him to act. We're not saying that God cannot do things. God is God, and he can do whatever he wants. But he has given us these 66 books which have revealed to us God's will and God's plan and it is our responsibility and our job as Christians to hold to this so in here there are things like uh, that say things that God can't do and that may shock us but but Titus tells us God can't lie for God to lie would mean he would sin for God to sin that mean he's not God God cannot lie and so when we talk about spiritual gifts ceasing, it's not that we're saying God can't do those things. We're saying that God, in his uh, uh, authority and his sovereignty, has laid out his revelation in this way. So Ephesians 2.20. Uh, let's actually start in 2.19, in just so we can get the context and make sense. So that you no longer are foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with christ jesus himself as the cornerstone in him the whole building being built together grows into a holy temple in the lord and in him you are being built together for god's dwelling in the spirit we're going to focus on ephesians 220 that's going to be the text we're going to keep coming back to because it's vital for us So we see in that text, Paul, who's writing Ephesians, says there's there's two foundations for the church, and then there's a cornerstone for the church. The cornerstone is Jesus. We're going to hold tight to Jesus, but the two foundations Paul gives are the apostles and the prophets. So for us to understand what the foundation of the church is, we have to understand who apostles are and who prophets are. Now, in a general sense, the word apostle means sent one. So everybody, every Christian, in a sense, is an apostle. We are sent by God to go out into our workplace or go to our families or to do whatever it is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in a technical sense, which the word apostle gets used in the New Testament, it's a group of of men, a group of people that God sets aside to be this foundational piece for the church. You and I are not foundational for the church. We are not the kind of apostles Paul is talking about here. So in the technical sense, there's 12 apostles, right? Judas dies, and then we see Matthias replace Judas in, in Acts chapter 1. It's the only instance of Scripture of an apostle being replaced. Outside of that, all of the other apostles, when they die, there's no indication in Scripture that that office is filled. But we do know there's more than just 12 apostles. Paul calls himself an apostle, and he wouldn't be lumped into the 12 barnabas is considered an apostle so we see in a technical sense that this word apostle used this way as a foundational piece of the church are these men who saw the baptism of jesus that's how matthias was was replaced saw jesus baptized and saw jesus resurrected That to be involved with his ministry for a long period of time so this role is is important for the foundation of the church, but there are no like capital A authoritative apostles today. And and most Pentecostal, most continuationist, most people who believe in the miraculous gifts will agree that there are no apostles like that today. Um, you have to do some kind of exegetical hermeneutic or her, uh, exegetical like uh, somersaults to make that work. <laughs> Vince. Get a bend over, rip some pages, do some stuff to make that work to where there's an apostle, capital A, today, writing authoritative words of Scripture, which is largely what the apostles did. And and so many continuationists do not agree that there are capital A apostles. The main group, whether you want to believe it or not, that will argue with us on the continuation of apostles is not like a Pentecostal, more charismatic group. It's going to be the Roman Catholics. There's a belief there that... The apostleship continues to pass down, and so we see that the Pope is an Apostle, capital A, who rules from his throne and says words that would be inerrant, and we would not agree with that. In Acts chapter 12, James, one of the apostles, dies, and he is not replaced. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, Paul says this, Last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he also appeared me and so Paul, talking about himself as an apostle, says, Last of all, meaning he's it. There's not an apostle that comes after Paul. Again, even continuationists believe that this is true that the authority of the apostles for us is preserved in their writings, which we have canonized in the scriptures. So, apostolic authority is the New Testament. So we get to Ephesians 2.20. If we look at it again, we see the foundation of the apostles ceased and prophets. So who are the prophets? This is where we need to dig deep, and this is what we need to figure out, who prophets are and what prophecy is. The, the definition we're going to go with is prophecy is a reception of spontaneous revelations that are communicated to God's people, to a person who then communicates it to an audience that God has for them. This is what we see happening in the Old Testament, that God would give a prophet a message, and that prophet would act as the mouthpiece for God who would take that message and say, this is what God says, and then he would speak as if he were giving, it God giving the message. He's not interpreting it. He's not applying it. He's not contextualizing it. He gets the message, flows out, and then he speaks it to what the people uh, are supposed to be hearing from God. It is not synonymous with preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching require opening up the Bible doing some deep work and then teaching this text of scripture in a way that helps whatever audience you have understand it right so i look at the text of scripture i try to find out what does this mean to the people who it was written to this is why we talk about the corinthians being a rough church that's why we need to understand the things that are going on because there are things in corinth that aren't going to necessarily be a one-to-one correlation with us in ira but the principles apply and we make that that's preaching that's teaching prophecy was not that Now, they would explain prophecies, and God would give them words sometimes that would talk about different uh, books of the Bible or different scriptures that had taken place. But prophecy and preaching and teaching are distinct. They're separate. The consequence for prophecy, right, and and the standard of prophecy, the, the truth is to be a biblical prophet, to be a true prophet, your prophecy had to come true. If it doesn't come true, the Bible calls you a false prophet. That's the standard. Deuteronomy 18:21 You may say to yourself how do we recognize a message the Lord has not spoken When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled that message is that is a message the Lord has not spoken The prophet has spoken presumptuously do not be afraid of him Again prophets in the Old Testament function as these mouthpieces that if God is truly speaking through them, then their words are going to come true. And if they speaking, if they say something, they prophesy, and it doesn't come true, they're a false prophet. There's no other distinctions here. It's infallible. There's no error. It doesn't fail. So New Testament prophecy then should be the same. That those who claim to be prophets are. The burden of proof is if you prophesy, it has to be true. You can't prophesy and it be wrong and still be a true prophet. That makes you a false prophet. However, when you talk to continuationists or you talk to people who believe that the gift or the office of prophecy still goes on, what they will often tell you is that prophecy now is a mixture of truth and error. That you can say things, that you can prophesy, and it's not always has to be completely, totally true. Do you understand the issue here? This This is what's taking place. I'm just telling you these things. That the issue is God speaks to the prophet now, and then somewhere between the brain and the mouth, which I get, I have that struggle, it changes. Their interpretation is wrong, or their application is wrong, or whatever. But that's not how prophecy worked in the Old Testament. And there's no indication that there's any change from the way prophecy was in the Old Testament to the way the prophecy was in the New Testament, or even prophecy, if you claim to do it now, is. So they will say things like prophecies are judged, not prophets. And then they're going to quote passages like 1 Corinthians 4, 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. Well, what are they evaluating? Prophecies. They're trying to separate truth from error is the argument. from There's separation of the prophets and what they say. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold to what is good. So the argument is don't reject prophets. Uh, but test the prophecies, find out what's true, find out what's the error, take, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. that That's the phrase. They'll say prophecies can be mixed with error, and they, that's proven because the New Testament prophecies are disobeyed and disobedience isn't seen as sinful. There's one there, there's two particular instances in Acts that we're going to talk a lot about. Acts twenty one verse four says this, We sought out disciples, stayed there seven days, and then through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So we have these prophets that, that Paul finds. They say, don't go to Jerusalem, and we're told in the text, through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. That's the, the call. Acts 21, verse 13. Then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we said, no more except the Lord's will be done. So you have, in one instance, these prophets saying, don't go to Jerusalem. And then in another instance, you have the Apostle Paul saying, no, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And both of them are told they make those decisions in the spirit. So what does this mean? Does it mean that there is truth and error mixed in with these prophecies? Well, that's the argument for continuationists. The other aspect we see with this comes with a, a prophet named Agabus. He was not a false prophet. Um, But he prophesies things about Paul that we need to understand. In Acts 21, verse 10 through 11, we see this. Now, after we'd been there several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us. He took Paul's belt. He tied his own hands and feet. And he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Agathus prophesies that the Jews will bind Paul and hand Paul over to the Romans, over to the Gentiles. Acts 21, verse 7, look what happens. When we were there seven days, uh, when the seven days was nearly over, some of the Jews of the province of Asia saw him, that's Paul, in the temple, and they stirred the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites help is this man uh, this is the man who is teaching everyone against our people our law and this place what's more is he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place for they have previously seen Trophus the Ephesian in the city with them and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple and the whole city was stirred and the people rushed together and they seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut and they were trying to kill him and word went to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos and so taking soldiers and Turians he immediately ran down to them seeing the commander and the soldiers they stopped beating Paul and then the commander approached took him, that's Paul, into custody and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he also, he asked who was uh, who he was and what he had done. And some of the crowd were shouting one thing and others another thing. And he was not getting able to get reliable information because of the uproar. So he ordered him to be taken to the barracks. And Paul got to the steps. Uh, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mass of people yelling, get rid of him. So it seems like there's, Agabus' prophecy is not completely true. Agabus says the Jews are going to bind Paul and give Paul to the Gentiles. What we see here are the Romans rescuing Paul because they were so angry at him they were going to kill him. So then what do continuationists do with Ephesians 2.20? Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone what they'll say is that apostles and prophets are combined here to mean one thing you have apostles who prophesy this is why this is such a controversial and debated topic and this is why there are compelling arguments I think from the Bible to be continuationist but I believe the cessationist view is more biblical the reason why is for several reasons I'm going to walk through One, we should always expect New Testament prophecy to be like Old Testament prophecy unless there is a decisive reason that they're saying something different. There is no indication that Old Testament prophecy is different than New Testament prophecy. And for somebody to say, no, New Testament prophecy is different means they need to prove that it's different. And there is no biblical evidence that should be received different. In fact, in the early church and in the Old Testament, false prophecy is a huge concern. I'm going to riddle off a bunch of passages because I want you to see the weight of this. Jeremiah 28, 9. As for the prophets who prophesies in peace, only when the word of the prophet comes true will the prophet be recognized as one the Lord has truly sent. Jeremiah 26. As for you, Pesher. All who live in your house, you will go into captivity, you will go to Babylon, and there you will die, and there you will be buried, and all your friends whom you prophesied lies. There's more in Jeremiah, too, but if you jump to the New Testament, First John 4, 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Acts thirteen six. When they were traveling, they traveled the island as far as Paphos, and they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named bar jesus, second peter one twenty one because no prophecy has ever come from the will of man instead men spoke from God as they were carried along by the holy Spirit, second Peter two. One, there were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there were false teachers among you. But they will bring destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought them, and they will bring uh, and will be bring swift destruction on themselves. Jesus teaches about false prophecies. Matthew twenty four eleven: Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Matthew twenty four twenty four: False messiahs and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders and lead many astray, if possible, even the elect. Mark thirteen twenty two is the the exact same phrase that, that uh, Matthew uh, that Jesus says there so I won't read it we'll jump to Matthew 7:15 be on your guard against false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravaging wolves Revelation 16:13 then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out from the dragon's mouth and from the beast's mouth and from the mouth of the false prophet Revelation 19.20, But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with the false prophet who had performed the signs in his presence, he uh, he deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its images with its signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Revelation 20.10, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Clearly, the Bible has a huge concern with false prophets. This is an issue. And there is a standard and there is a way for us as believers to be confident that the words that we hear are from God and not a false prophet trying to lead us astray. So then true prophets cannot have their prophecies be mixed with error. How in the New Testament would you be able to decipher who is a true prophet from a false prophet if every prophecy you get is either has a little bit of truth and a little bit of error in it? There is no way. You think about the Ephesians or the Corinthians who Paul's writing to in this text and in this history don't have the written word of God like you and I have. They may have letters, but they don't have it all compiled and put together. How would they be able to hear what somebody says and say this is what's true and this is what's false? The rebuttal, So prophecy cannot, there's no distinction, there's no difference in Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. It's inerrant, it's infallible, it does not fail. The test is, does it come true or does it not? And if it does not come true, you're a false prophet. So the rebuttal or the argument sometimes by continuation is, well, prophecy is kind of like teaching, and you can have false teachers, which is true. But it's not like teaching and preaching. If you have a false teacher, that teacher is supposed to be teaching you something from the Bible, and if they teach you a false teaching, you should be able to open up your Bible and say, this is false teaching, and lay out why. There's a standard there. The significance of New Testament prophets is evident and we cannot be uh, restricted to private and individual concerns. That's the other argument. Well, maybe God's just giving me a word and it's a word just for me. Or maybe he's giving me a word and it's a word for just for somebody else. Remember Ephesians 2.20. The prophets and apostles were given for the foundation of the church with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. They're seen as a group of people who have authority in a church. that are giving messages that should be heard by multitudes of people, not just one or two others. So if prophecy still exists today, it's hard to see how the foundation of the church is completed if there are still prophets wandering around. And if that's the case, if they're speaking truth, then are their words revelatory words? Should we add them to the Scripture? Should we hold them to just as tightly as we hold to the Bible? Ephesians 2.20, prophecy is not good advice. It's not practical issues that, that you're going through. It's not telling you who you should marry and who you shouldn't marry and who you should vote for and who you shouldn't vote for. That's not biblical prophecy. Ephesians 2.20 shows that apostles and prophets are distinct, that it's not one group of, of people. And if you don't believe Ephesians 2.20 with it, Ephesians 4.10 says, And he gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So we see a separation between the two groups there. In 1 Corinthians 12.28, Paul says, And God has appointed these things for the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, leading, various kinds of tongues. There's a clear distinction between apostles and prophets. In fact, to combine them in Ephesians 2.20, that would be the only place in the Scripture where you combine those two roles everything else they're distinct and they're separate so if apostles play such a pivotal role in the foundation of the church it seems very unlikely that apostles would play that same foundational role in the church and not cease like the uh, apostles have so what about the, the new testament prophecies as opposed to judging the prophets that's the continuationist argument well in the new testament you see prophecies judged you don't see prophets judged but we saw in deuteronomy that a prophet is determined if he's true or false by the words that he says by his prophecies right i can say that i'm an olympic runner and that i work hard and do all of those things but if you never see me run an olympic race are you going to believe that i'm an olympic runner man i hope not that's what paul's saying that's what god is saying in deuteronomy a prophet is someone who speaks the revelatory word of god we have to judge if someone's a true or false prof- prophet based on the words that they say and there's no indication that prophecies in the new testament are to be treated differently than prophecies in the old testament so what about agabus was he wrong well, what we see in Acts is Agabus actually prophesies twice. He does a prophecy in, in Acts chapter 11, and, and that prophecy comes true. He says that there would be a severe famine that would take place throughout the Roman world, um, and it was completely accurate, and the same is true in Acts 21. Now, at first glance, it may seem odd to say Agabus got his prophecy right, but, but let me walk you through the text. So, Agabus chapter, uh, sorry, not Agabus, Acts chapter 2, 21, verse 11. He, that's Agabus, came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. This prophecy that Agabus does sets into motion the circumstances which will ultimately lead Paul to Rome. That's his goal. If you read the Apostle, if you read Acts, that's the goal, right? First Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. the ends of the earth is Rome, and that's where Paul is trying to get to. And so when he finally gets to Rome and he is on trial, Paul is recounting his life. And in Paul's recounting of his life, he says this in Acts 28, verse 17. After three days, he called together the leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, although I have done nothing against our people's customs and our ancestors, I was... Delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Delivered is the exact same word Paul uses or Agabus uses in Acts 21. So Paul understood Agabus' prophecy is completely coming true. So then what was Agabus doing? Because Paul's belt didn't bind his, his hands. He was using prophetic symbolism, which we see all over the Old Testament. Do you know that Isaiah walked around naked? This is in the Bible. In Isaiah 21 through 6, and he walked around to naked to symbolize the coming of Egypt, uh, a judgment coming on Egypt and Cush. I don't think Isaiah was saying so. Y'all need to just walk around naked. Jeremiah wore a linen undergarment, right? He had special underwear. Symbolizing that Judah and Jerusalem should cling to the Lord. This is Jeremiah 13. But do you know what Paul does? Or not Paul. Do you know what Jeremiah does with that? Throws it in the river Euphrates so that it's ruined, which indicates that Israel's distance from God prophetic symbolism. Ezekiel built some miniature siege works against Jerusalem, symbolizing Babylon is going to come and judge Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 4. Agabus is showing that he's in line with the Old Testament prophets. He's giving Old Testament symbolism. The man who owns the belt is going to be bound, who's going to be delivered from the Jews to the Romans. So what about the people in Acts 21 who told Paul not to go to Jerusalem? And then Paul looks and says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Acts 21.4 We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days Through the Spirit they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem Why did they not want Paul to go to Jerusalem? Because they knew that he would suffer The prophecy was that Paul will suffer If he goes to Jerusalem And so they decided to interpret that prophecy To mean so don't go to Jerusalem But Paul also being Spirit filled Says no that's not what the prophecy means The prophecy means I need to go to Jerusalem They misapplied it. So that lays out the the case for cessationism largely. That covers many objections. But one of the things I think we need to understand and where it gets misunderstood and misapplied prophecy now is this idea that so God doesn't speak to us like that. God certainly might give you impressions on people. He might lean your heart to care for a ministry or for a person or for a family or for whatever it is that you might have a draw that the Lord is using within you in that heart, but it's not prophecy. It's God giving you a passion, God giving you something in your life, impressing upon you something like that, and that certainly could be true from the Lord. But let's be careful to not call that prophecy. Ephesians 2.20 gives us a good understanding of how God works with prophecy. Right, The church was built on the foundation of these apostles and these prophets which have ceased. The foundation of the church is set. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. There's no fixed date to when prophecy ceases, but what we see looking at church history is as the New Testament canon is completed and as it's put together and as it's able to be copied and dispersed across culture and across Christians that you see prophecy fading away. So we no longer have the gift of apostleship, we no longer have the gift of prophecy, there's not prophets running around in the sense of the Old Testament and New Testament terms. The scripture now constitutes our sole and final authority. This is the revelation from God. Nobody is running around giving a new revelation from God. This doesn't need to be updated. It doesn't need to be modernized. It doesn't need somebody else to come in and say, well, God forgot about this. He didn't see what was going to happen with COVID. So now we have to add in all of these extra things to the Bible. That's not what God does. He's sovereign. This is his revealed word for us. So what about tongues? We've walked through texts in First Corinthians, and so I'm going to just quickly summarize here. Tongues and prophecy are closely related. We see tongues in Acts 2, and they're understood as it's these different languages that people are speaking And Within those languages, everybody's hearing the, the gospel proclaimed in their native language and in their native dialect. That's my favorite part of it. They heard twang. If they were from Texas, you could go and you would hear English, and you would hear English with a little bit of a draw or whatever on it that, that twang that goes into place. And it's always been understood to be that way, that tongues has always been languages. And so by the time 1 Corinthians is written, there's no indication that the nature of tongues has changed there. In fact, I was, I was telling Linda, I did a bunch of research, and, and really when tongues began to mean like just nonsensical babble, it was with the Pentecostal movement that took place around the 40s and, and is still growing today. The irony is they initially thought and recognized that tongues were different languages, and they thought they were speaking Chinese. And so they sent missionaries to China without <laughs> learning the language. And they showed up and tried to speak Chinese. And what they found out was it was not Chinese, that there was a language barrier there. We have writings from of from the sur- first people who were arguing about being able to speak in tongues and that this gift was continuing on, and they said that they wrote in Chinese. And you look at their writings and you go, it is not Chinese. It's just it's chicken scratch. It wasn't changed until they came back And then they were like well if that's not what tongues is Then maybe this is what tongues is And that's where it's taken off now to me Just kind of this, this babbling thing this, this language, this angelic language Or whatever you want to call it So could God use tongues in some missionary situation God is God and he can do what he wants And so absolutely Absolutely But what we see with tongues is the same thing with prophecy. And Paul even argues that prophecy is greater than tongues because prophecy has to have an interpreter. I mean, tongues has to have an interpreter. If it's in a different language, somebody has to interpret that for you, whereas prophecy doesn't have to be that way. And so tongues, when it's interpreted, is prophecy. And so it's ceased. Uh, Healings. This is a hard one that gets misunderstood with cessationists, and we need to understand this. We should pray for those who are sick. We have a prayer list filled with people who need our prayers. We have a prayer list filled with people who need to be healed, and God certainly and does still heal people today. What you do not find is somebody who has the gift of healing that can at will run around and heal everybody. If they had that gift and they do not show up at the cancer wing of a children's hospital, they are terrible people. But you don't see that. Instead, you see these shows of people who, if you'll give them enough money, then they will heal you, but you never get a refund if you don't get healed. We recognize that, that nobody has at least that gift, right? God may heal in in, in individual circumstances about that, and he may not. But nobody is running around with that gift, and we don't view the other gifts that are still going on that way. Nobody is going, well, I'm not feeling hospitable today. I just don't have that gift today. We don't view other ones that way. We just do it with healing. We also need to recognize what God used healing for in the Bible. There are people in the scriptures who are healed, the ten lepers comes to mind, that that, that are healed from scripture and they are not believers. They don't have leprosy anymore, but they don't come back, they don't worship Jesus, they don't show repentance, they don't show trust, they don't show faith, they don't show belief in Jesus Christ. What healings were done for by Jesus and by the apostles was to prove that they are who they said that they were. That there's always a word from God that goes out from there. We can pray for miracles, and and, and we should pray for healings. But at best, they're rare. We also see in John chapter 9, the blind man who is healed, and, and we're commended that they go and try to find out if this really was the blind man who was healed. They're supposed to investigate, right? If somebody is like, I used to have, I don't know, four arms, and then somebody came and they healed me, and now I only have two arms, we should be investigating that and seeing if it's true or not true. Paul healed people in the book of acts right Uh, acts 19 god was performing extraordinary miracles by paul's hands so that even face cloths and aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them that's acts chapter 19 yet when paul writes to his protege timothy in first timothy chapter 5 paul says this don't continue drinking only water but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses if paul understood healing to continue on himself as a healer why would he not just mail timothy a little bit of garment and say hey just rub this on your tummy and then you're going to be good to go man that's not what he says he says timothy the church you have is hard take take the edge off man that's a joke that's not what he's saying here he's saying the water might be impure put a little bit of wine in there to purify the water Philippians chapter 2 verse 25 says this but I consider it necessary to send you Epaphroditus my brother co-worker and fellow soldier as well as your messenger and minister to my need since he has been longing for all of you and was in distress because you have heard that he was sick. And did he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, so that I would not have to have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am eager to send him, so that you may rejoice, that when you see him again, I may be less anxious. I preached through Philippians a few years ago, and, and the common theme is Paul loves that church, and that church loves the Apostle Paul that they are close-knit, that in fact that church sent this man, Epaphroditus, to Paul to minister to Paul, and he gets to Paul, and Paul says, he got so sick he almost died, and it was worrisome for me, and he just wanted to go back to be with y'all. If Paul still had the gift of healing, then why did he not just heal Epaphroditus right there? Because it had ceased. Paul's able to heal people in Acts, and then tells Timothy to drink wine to sterilize water. It's Paul's way of saying use the medical knowledge that you have. Paul loves the Philippians and and the Philippians love Paul and have his close relationship and so Paul's concerned that Epaphroditus might not make it because he's so sick. What we see in the New Testament is those gifts of healing slowly fading. All of this is important and I know this feels and can kind of feel like it's just this theological nugget that we can have but there's no real application to it but that's not the case it was important enough for me to feel like I need to designate an entire sermon to this doctrine because there is this movement going on in Snyder and the pressure that I see and the pressure I feel from other people is I assume you're seeing and you're feeling the same pressure that if you can't do those miraculous things, that if you can't pray over somebody and have them healed or speak in tongues or prophesy or or do whatever miraculous thing, then we're somehow treated like we're less of a Christian or we're not spirit filled Christians like we're supposed to be and actually if we look at the Bible as a whole and we study it and we let it shape us and we let it inform us what we find is that the spirit-filled Christian is the Christian who's filled with his word who wrote the Bible? God did Through centuries of time, with hundreds of different people who are all in different places and in different cultures, yet we see this one unified message coming from the Scripture, and we know that God, as the Holy Spirit, and dwell would would help men to pin down, to write the inerrant Word. Use their personalities; they're not just you know robots writing these things, but it does it in various different ways. They would write Psalms, and then there's history, and then there's prophecy, there's apocalyptic literature. We see all sorts of letters and different things, and Paul understood his writings too be authoritative word of God letters and it's the Holy Spirit that does that and we're taught in the scriptures that if we believe in Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit indwells us so to be a spirit-filled Christian is simply to be somebody who cares about the word of God to be filled with the word of God and at times God has used miraculous gifts to glorify himself we see a lot of miracles taking place in the era of Moses don't we We see a lot of miracles taking place in the era of Joshua. We see a lot of miracles taking place in, in the era of Jesus. Those are real miracles. We're not saying that those aren't true. Those are absolutely true. We believe Jonah was put in the belly of a fish. We absolutely believe that happened. But never do we see prophecy usurp the word of God. Never do we see miracles take authoritative stances above the word of God. That it always points to it. This is why this is important, because this is the battle before us. This is what we have to fight for and what we have to hold to. Most of the people around us, and ourselves included, will say that the Bible is inerrant, that it is without error, that it is infallible, that it will not fail, that it is authoritative, and that we should build our lives upon the Scripture. But the argument in the battle that you and I have to decide is, is the Bible sufficient? Is it enough? Does God tell us what we need to do and how we need to live in Ira, Texas in 2024 in this ancient document of Scripture? Or do we need other authoritative words of God to help us do that? That is the fight that we're fighting right now. The Bible is absolutely sufficient and it is absolutely enough. But what you and I find ourselves in, in this stage of history, is there are these subtle temptations to undermine the sufficiency of the scriptures. You and I will hear the same things. We will hear people have a 15 minute max attention span. And with TikTok, that's gone down to about 15 seconds. So we need to figure out a way to present the Bible as sufficient in 15 seconds with some cool music and some dance moves that you can do on it. We'll read statistics that say that reading is dramatically down and that videos and entertainment where we find ourselves disconnected and vegging out are on the rise. And then we will say things like that we want to do what the Bible tells us to do. It is our authority, yet we won't sit down and read it. We will say things like this is the word of God that is applicable to us, but we will not sit down and memorize texts of scripture because it's hard. We will say at the end of the day, it's the word of God, but what we say and how we live it out are often two different things. I desperately want to know God more I desperately want to be deeper in the Lord I desperately want you to know God more I desperately want you to be deeper in the Lord and the way that we do that is not through new prophetic words the way that we do that is not through healings the way that we do that is not through speaking in tongues or whatever miraculous gifts we can think of the way that we do that is turning to the Scriptures and then living the Scriptures out with one another because everything about this fallen world does not want you in the word of God. Everything. It is not a coincidence that that is the way the world is going. If you do not think that Satan is not behind the entertainment culture, you are wrong. We want to think of Satan as like, horns and he's just doing all sorts of things but just the addiction we face to good shows or good entertainment options or the desire to watch those things rather than just sit down and buckle down and do the trudging and the hard work of reading the scriptures over and over and faithfully and diligently day in and day out immersing ourselves in the word of God and committing to one another to help us grow in the word of God is absolutely and incredibly difficult near impossible but with God all things are possible. don't have to do all these miraculous things to be a Christian. In fact, that's what the gospel tells us. God doesn't look at us and go, you know what? You can't speak in tongues. Don't need you. You don't prophesy, get out of here. You only know how to work a band-aid. You don't know how to like pray and heal a bone. Get that nonsense out of here. Oh, God looks at us and he sees our weakness. God looks at us and he sees our struggle. God looks at us and he sees us for who we are. Broken people who absolutely have no hope in life outside of Jesus Christ. We're not saved because we have it all together. We're not saved because we're some super status of Christians. We're saved because we're needy people who cling to Jesus Christ and refuse to let go. You don't have to heal people left and right to be something special to the Lord. You don't have to prophesy all of these massive prophecies. You're not saved because you're special, but you're saved to God. Which means your value, your worth, your dignity, your ability is wrapped up in Christ, in Christ alone, not in spiritual gifts. So relax. Relax be a spirit-filled christian which means read your bibles be in the scripture start small and be consistent and watch what happens over time as the lord begins to develop within you a love for his word and what you will find out as there begins to be this rejection of other things the word of god is our revelatory word from him the bible let us be people of the book let's pray father thank you for today thank you that we can gather together and we can focus on your word god we understand that other people are going to have other understandings of your word on very important topics but are secondary topics but god i pray that you would help us to be humble in our understanding of if the geese gifts have ceased or not to be willing god to steady your word and be corrected if we need to through your word God, I pray that you would help us to also understand that you didn't save us by grace alone through faith alone and in you alone for your glory because we had it all together. And that our salvation, God, doesn't it's not supposed to make us arrogant. It's not supposed to make us look down upon other people if they're not quite as quote unquote spiritual as we are. God, it's to help us repent of our sin quicker, to love one another better, to help one another grow in you more, to share your gospel, God, to be people of your world, word. Everything else in this world is going to fade. Everything else in this world is going to change. Everything else in this world is a shaky and unfirm foundation. But God, you have given us your scriptures, your authoritative word, so that we can stand firm. And we can look like fools in the world's eyes. Because we hold to this ancient book. But God, we believe it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we stand firm on the rock of your truth. Help us to make much of you, Jesus. Help us to be people of your book. God, help us to grow grow us in love of your word because your word, God, is, is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is enough. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.